I also noticed in my kids very young how quickly they began to assert their little self-wills and how quickly they became naughty. I don't know if any of you ever noticed that when your kids were little. Uh, We're going to talk about that this morning um, in some depth, and I want to start by looking at a passage in Ezekiel 36 that talks about this. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up. Ezekiel 36 is kind of right in the middle. If you open up to the middle, you'll probably get to the Psalms and then go to the right, just a few chapters, and you'll find Ezekiel chapter 36. And if you can grab a Bible out of the chair, or if you have a phone or something, we've got uh, Wi-Fi. You can access a Bible easily if you want to do that. I think it's helpful if you can follow along. Ezekiel 36. And we are continuing in the middle of a series that we've been doing for a number of weeks, but every week is kind of uh, stands alone a little bit. But we're looking at the vocabulary of our faith and what does it mean for us to be people who bring transformation to our world and into our community. Are there certain things we need to know and understand as a people? And today we're looking at uh, faith and repentance as uh, key items in our transformation vocabulary. And actually, Ezekiel 36 is another beautiful baptismal image, uh, the idea of being washed clean. Listen to these words, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep all of my laws. This is God's word and it's true and we can rely on it. You've probably heard the term domino effect before. That's the theory that a small event can trigger a lot of additional events. And actually, since you brought up World War I, some of you are history buffs, remember the triggering event for World War I? The assassination of Archduke Ferdinand was a simple event that happened, and then a whole bunch of dominoes fell, which led to World War I. There is a... uh, The reason it got its theory is... uh, This theory got its name is because of this... How many of you have ever done that? Line up dominoes and push them over. Yeah. Now, I understand that this can also be experienced in other ways, and if you go on YouTube, it doesn't take you more than a couple clicks to, f- to find people doing this with books and cereal boxes and mattresses, and one of the more interesting ones was pallets in a warehouse. And uh, somebody did this with 10,000 iPhones, do you know what the world record is for the most number of dominoes to fall continuously? Anybody? It's over half a million, like 500,336, and that's because some of them didn't go. But the domino effect says that one thing leads to another. Today I want to focus on this effect and how it's related to sin and temptation. And I've got a passage I want to read to you, a second passage that talks about the domino effect. This is from James chapter 1, if you want to follow along. James 1, starting with verse 14. As I'm reading this, see if you can't hear the domino effect. 
Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and seduced. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Get the domino effect there? Evil desire leads to seduction, which leads to sin, which leads to death. One follows automatically upon the other. Now, this is just like a little bit of a domino effect, and I wanted to look at this more deeply by examining one story where this domino effect had a really dramatic effect. And the story is in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Some of you will remember this story about David and Bathsheba. It's a very familiar story for most of us. The story starts out on a kind of normal spring day. It's the time of years when king, uh, kings normally go to war in the spring, but for some reason this year, King David decided to stay home. He's not going to go to war, although he did send his troops out. So the first domino in this chain is the domino of King David is not where he was supposed to be. Okay, that's the first domino in this whole link. Now I want you to listen to how these dominoes fall. This is 2 Samuel 11, starting with verse 1. In the springtime of the year, the season when most kings took their soldiers out to fight, David stayed in Jerusalem. There's your first domino. He's in Jerusalem. Early one evening, David rose from his bed and was strolling on the palace roof when he saw a woman bathing on a roof below him. She was very beautiful. So David sent someone to find out who the woman was, and the answer came back that she was Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. End of story, right? No. We wish the story would end there, but the dominoes have been pushed. He sees this beautiful woman. He inquires about who she is. He finds out that he's, she's married to another man, and this is what happens next. David inquires about her. This is a domino falling. He couldn't get her off his mind, so he sent a messenger to her house. Now, this is the kind of thing kings get to do, I guess. And, sit, and then he sent for her. And she came, and we're told in the next verse, and he laid with her, and then... She went home. King David put himself in the wrong place where he then looked at the wrong person and in his heart he imagined doing something wrong with her. And then he acted on it. And this is not a romantic encounter. There's no courting or conversation, no tenderness or romance. There's no love in this. This is lust. He saw something. He wanted it. He went and he got it. Evil desires, seduction, sin, death. I just have an an aside for men so women don't have to listen to this. Fritz, you do. (laughs) Our eyes get us into trouble, men. Is this true? 
Now all the women are nodding. Yeah. <laughs> if we are men who want to remain faithful and pure, we need to be careful about where we go and what we look at. That's the end of the aside. Seeing Bathsheba bathing in, on the roof was the domino falling. And it led to lust, which led to a sexual assault on another man's wife. And then a few weeks later, David gets this message from Bathsheba, and it's a simple message. This is the first time Bathsheba speaks in the story, and this is what she says. I'm pregnant. The baby cannot be her husband's because her husband Uriah is out fighting David's war. He's not home. It is David's baby, and he wants no one to know about this. And so another domino starts to fall. David plans a cover-up. He tries to trick Uriah. So he calls Uriah back from the battlefield, and he greets him and says, Welcome back. I want to talk to you tomorrow. Go home. But Uriah doesn't go home. Uriah actually has too much integrity to go home. Instead, he sleeps at the palace gate with the other servants, and he says, as long as my men are on the battlefield sleeping in tents, I will not go home. David's plan is foiled. But he's not done yet. One more domino. One more trick. He invites Uriah to the palace and gets Uriah drunk. And then he says to him, now go home. Be with your wife. It doesn't work. A drunken Uriah has more integrity than a sober King David. He sleeps on the palace porch again and does not go home, and so his cover-up fails. Another domino falls. So far, David has tried to cover up this sin that he's committed all by himself. He hasn't involved anybody else, but this is about to expand now he has to ask for help. And so what he does in his next step of this plan, if, and you can read all this in detail in chapter 11 if you want to read the in-between spots, he says, I'm going to send Uriah back to the front with a note for his commander, Joab. And in this note, David says, go into an intense battle, and when the fighting is at its worst, withdraw, but leave Uriah out in front. He writes this little plan down in a note, puts it in an envelope, and he gives it to Uriah to give to his commander. Essentially, Uriah is taking his death sentence to his own firing squad, is what he's doing. And Uriah does exactly what he's asked to do. He's a loyal follower of the king and a loyal soldier. And King David knows that his desperate plan works when he gets a message back from the front that there was this incredible battle and Uriah is dead. That's the message he gets. Evil desire, seduction, sin, death. Does this thing that David did 
sound incredibly diabolical to you? It hit me this week as I was reading, especially this part about him bringing his own message to his commander. Incredibly evil. Incredibly diabolical. But now it looks like he's going to get away with it. Because Uriah is dead. Bathsheba goes into mourning for her husband, but after a very short period of mourning, David invites her to the palace and makes her his wife. And then she has the baby. And it looks like David is off the hook. But chapter 11 ends with some really foreboding words. This is how the whole chapter ends. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. God is not happy about this. So now we can't stop the story there. We've got to go into the next chapter and find out what happens next. So chapter 12 starts with this story. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, I have a story to tell you. Here's the story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb. He had bought this lamb and he had raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and it drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. This lamb was like one of the family. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refused to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead, he went to the poor man and he took his one little lamb and he prepared it and he fed it to the traveler. When David heard this story, he burned with anger against the man and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, that man must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because what he did was an abomination. He had no pity. Then Nathan turned to David and he said, You are that man. David is busted. And now it's a moment of truth when David has a choice. And maybe some of you can relate to this choice. I know that I can. Because I know that there's been times in my life when I have done things that were diabolical. And then I got caught. And in the moment I got caught, I had a choice. I could continue to try to cover up. I could continue to try to manipulate the circumstances. I could continue to lie, continue to deny it, right? That's one option. That's an option David had. He could... Think one more step in the plot, one more domino to fall. That's one option. In my mind, what that looks like is it looks like being on the hook. You know, we use that expression sometimes for getting caught. You're on the hook, and I have it pictured as like a fish with a big hook in their mouth. They're on the hook already, and they're trying to get the hook out, and they flop. Some of you are fishermen. I don't know if this actually happens or not. You can verify this. And the fish starts to flop around, and what happens to the hook? It goes in deeper and deeper and deeper the more you flop. That's one option we can take when we've been busted for our sin, when we've been confronted with the reality of our 
dark hearts. We can stay on the hook and keep flopping around. Or we can come clean. I think one way to talk about this is you say, I get off the hook. I admit it. I confess. I repent. This is the choice that David made when he was busted by Nathan. Did you know that he wrote about this later, David did, in Psalm 51? Psalm 51 is the prayer that David prayed after Nathan confronted him. Listen to how David comes clean. This is Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew me with a steadfast spirit. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's David's prayer when Nathan confronts him. No more denial, no more cover-up, no more self-delusion. You know, maybe you can relate to how far some people will go to maintain an appearance of goodness, to even delude themselves into thinking they've done nothing wrong. People go quite a, quite a ways. I read an interesting story this week about a British psychologist who was working in a prison And he described some loopy ways that criminals attempted to sneak out from underneath their own guilt. One of the stories he told was about a man he met who had been sentenced to life in prison for murdering his wife. But the convicted murderer was enraged about the verdict and thought that the trial had been a sham. Called it a kangaroo court. And so the guy asked him, why was it? He said, they didn't look at the medical evidence. So he asked him, what kind of medical evidence would you want them to look at? He said, what she died of. So the guy asked, what did she die of? And he said, she died of a hemorrhage. And he asked, how did she get the hemorrhage? And the guy said, they pulled the knife out. Self-deception rewrites the story so that we can escape judgment, so that we can escape blame, so that we can escape guilt. And every one of us is capable of doing this. Sometimes we deny this or that behavior specifically, but underneath there is a much bigger denial, and that denial is what actually caused the sin in the first place. Do you know what the cause is? It's our hearts. The Bible talks a lot about this. Jesus talks about this very bluntly in Matthew 18. He says this, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And that is what defiles them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. 
what comes out of the heart. A couple chapters later, he explains this in even more depth when he's got a whole chapter of like woes against the Pharisees and all of these are kind of similar in um, their intent. I'm just going to read one because it makes it clear that as religious people, we sometimes get this wrong. We focus on external behavior and think if we can just clean up your behavior, if we can just act better, we're going to be okay. We'll solve the problem. But it's not just about acting better. It's about what comes from inside that has to be dealt with. We have to face this or there's trouble. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside they're full of greed and indulgence. You are blind. First, clean the inside, and then the outside will also become clean. Jesus says that if we hope to be in a right relationship with God, we have to deal with our hearts. We have to come clean about the nature of our ability to disobey God, to seek our own way. We have to admit that we've sinned against God and that offense needs to be repaired. This is exactly what David prays about. And this part of the prayer actually surprises me a little bit because when David's sinning against you and you only, he's talking about God. Well, it's not just God. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the, whole, the entire nation of his people by being a, a, a despicable leader, a tyrant. But David understands something here. He names the real issue. As bad as all of his other sins were, the real rebellion is against God, not doing what God has asked him to do. There was one sentence in all my studying this week that caught my attention the most. It was this sentence. Unless we see God as the most offended party when we sin, we will not hate our sin. Unless we see that our offense is really against the holy God, then we're not really going to hate our sin. We'll just try to cover it up. Evil desire, seduction, sin, death. The problem starts when I take God off the throne, when I don't believe that God is in charge, when I don't trust God's words, when I don't obey what God tells us to do. So this is what we mean when we talk about transformation in this little mission that we have. Our, our, our real mission in transforming the quarter is not behavior modification. We're not running around trying to say, we've got to fix everybody's behavior. We've got to get everyone to behave differently. Our real goal, our real ambition is to say, we want to see hearts transformed. We want to see transformation that comes from the inside out. We want to clean the inside first. Our goal is not this external behavioral modification. It's internal transformation. Our goal is new hearts. That's our goal. And there's really good news if that's our goal because that's God's goal too. God wants to renew hearts and transform hearts. Listen to these words again from Ezekiel 26. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you so that you may follow my decrees and obey my laws. 
Everyone needs a new heart, and this is what God wants to do. He wants to give everybody a new heart. I'm struck by David's story and Nathan's confrontation and Psalm 51's confession because throughout this entire story, there's no hint of blame, like blame the world or blame my parents or blame my circumstances. There's no hint of that anywhere. David says, I know the source of my problem. I know what caused the first domino to fall. It was my heart was bad. And so he confesses and asks God to give him a new heart, and God does. The first sentence of that Psalm 51 literally is this. Grace me in your grace, O God. Grace me with your grace. Grace upon grace. Lavish grace. David recognizes the way for him to get out from the hook is God's grace. So that even a lust-filled adulterer and a scheming liar and a heartless murderer can be forgiven, can get a new heart, because that's exactly what God does. God is bigger than our sin. He's bigger than the sin of our family, of our community. God is bigger than all the sins in our entire corridor. And God knows, just as David needed a new heart, just as we need a new heart, everyone in the corridor needs a new heart. And that's what we are praying for when we're praying for God to transform the corridor. Lord God, I give you thanks for your good news. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who came so that we might have new hearts. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who takes these truths and applies them to us. And God, we we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.